Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bearers, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Sean Sherman, a citizen of the Oglala Lakota tribe. Chef Sean Sherman was born and raised in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Cooking in kitchens across the United States and Mexico for over 30 years, Chef Sean is renowned nationally and internationally in the culinary movement of indigenous foods. His primary focus is the revitalization and evolution of indigenous foods systems throughout North America. His extensive studies on the foundations of indigenous food systems have led to a deep understanding of what is needed to showcase Native American cuisine in today's world. In 2014, Chef Sean opened the business The Sous Chef, designed to provide catering and food education in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. He and his business partner, Dana Thompson, also designed and opened the Tatanka Truck, which featured 100% pre-contact foods of the Dakota and Minnesota territories. What makes Chef Sean so interesting is that he's done something that many of us talk about doing, but rarely follow through on, and that was seeing this huge disparity in North America took it on by committing himself to education and creation of foods that are true to our culture, our history, and actually pretty healthy for us, all the while creating a world-class space and business. So let's jump into this conversation with Chef Sean Sherman. Sean Sherman, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. It's really great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so, uh, if you could introduce yourself, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and your background. Of course. My name is Sean Sherman. I am, uh, a chef. I'm in Minneapolis. Um, I was born and raised on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. And I'm an enrolled member of the Oglala Lakota Sioux tribe. Um, I uh, have a company called the Sioux Chef, um, based out of Minneapolis and it's S-I-O-U-X. And we also have a nonprofit called Natives or North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, where we run a nonprofit kitchen called Indigenous Food Lab. Um, I have a cookbook out there called The Sous Chef's Indigenous Kitchen. Um, and there's, there's lots of information on the web about the work that we do. Can you tell us about your, your biggest influences uh, growing up and those today? I think, you know, my biggest influences is really just being closely connected to nature because when I was growing up on the reservation, we lived way out in the country um, and we didn't spend a lot of time indoors. We were just, we, we grew up outdoors basically it felt like. So TV wasn't an option. I think I had one and a half TV channels and it just wasn't even a thing, you know? So we spent all our times running around the plains. Uh, we spent our summers running around the Black Hills in South Dakota, which is really beautiful. Um, and just being like that. Um, and then the other piece for me, it was really just being connected with food because I started working in restaurants at a very young age when I barely turned 13. Um, and just, you know, always around food and always outdoors. And I think, you know, those two things really helped influence me. And especially when I kind of had the epiphany of doing the work that I'm doing now of realizing the complete invisibility of indigenous foodways across America and really wanting to understand my Lakota influences. You know, I think about 
some of the things that my grandparents did that were still a part of the foodways, like harvesting timsala or prairie turnip or harvesting choke cherries and hunting. Um, so, and just, you know, some of the pieces that were, that were there that were before, you know, uh, we were colonized. Uh, I grew up on the assistant Wapitan Oyate. Oh, nice. Uh, Wabetuan cool. Myself. That's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, I, I grew up in the country and my father had this enormous garden. And so, um, you know, we always had potatoes and beans and corn and it was the same thing. We would, uh, we would be out in the country, um, uh, harvesting where we could. Uh, and it was interesting because, you know, nowadays they would call that organic foods, right. Um, right. the, the way we gardened. Uh, but then there was also that, that part too, that we received a lot of commodities Yeah, and, you know, of course, the the quality of that food is starkly different from the the what we grew in the garden. And was was that part of your experience growing up too, uh, with those food options or the last food options? Absolutely. I mean, our cupboards were filled with the commodity foods, like a lot of families, you know, out there on the reservation. Um, and it was the same food that we saw when we went to our schools. You know, it was all kind of, that was our nutritional source for the most part, unless we did have a, access to a garden or we could hunt. Um, you know, my grandfather had quite a bit of cattle, so we were able to have a lot of beef product, but that wasn't typical, you know, for a lot of families. And we still saw a lot of the canned commodity foods you know, and proteins from those come into dinner, you know. So if anybody's had government canned beef or government canned salmon for dinner before, you'll know what I'm talking about. But And, um, you know, and I remember since we grew up way outside in the country, like when I went to school in this town that was less than 100 people, and uh, we we were always the last kids to get there because our bus was just this big suburban that would pick up some of the, some of us that were kind of on the outskirts and drive us into the town. And we would have to eat um, a breakfast as soon as we got there. Um, and it was usually just a little personal box of cereal that you just rip open and you pour the powdered, powdered milk right into the bag and just eat it right there. And then we'd have to shoot uh, a little container of juice and it was uh, choices were orange juice or tomato juice. But since we were always the last kids there, it was always the room temperature tomato juice in a paper cup that we had. To, they were forced us to drink. You know, it was awful. So that that memory of commodity foods has never been that good for me. But and really, it's just the nutritional aspect because you know, becoming a chef and working with a lot of healthy foods. And just looking at like this base of nutrition, that's just awful, you know, it's just high in all sorts of carbs of all kinds, you know, and it's just over processed. There's way too many sugars, just too many carbs in general, over salted vegetables, over sugared fruits um, and just all those pieces. And it's just not real food, you know, and it's no wonder that we're suffering um, so hard, especially in tribal communities that are still relying on commodity foods. And I know that the USDA is moving in the right direction, but it's going to take some time. Um, and we really should have been doing a lot better than this before now because it's still active out there today. Hmm. Uh, very, uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, my wife is a physician and a number of the doctors up here um, who have worked uh, on the reservations and in Indian, Indian country, uh, the biggest thing is diabetes. And Absolutely. there's a straight line correlation between diabetes and the commodities uh, that we have uh, were brought up on. Absolutely. And, um, you know, and I, I asked some of my, um, my, my family, like, 
you know, like when did fry bread come around Pine Ridge, you know, because I have an aunt that just passed away and she was in her 90s. So she's been on Pine Ridge since the 30s. Right. And, you know, so when do you remember fry bread becoming popular? Because for me, I was born in 74. And as I was growing up, it was always around. But she said she doesn't remember it in the 1960s at all, like maybe in the late 1960s at the earliest, but really didn't really become popular till this, like around the time I was born, like in the early 70s. Um, she said when she lived down south in the southwest, where a lot of um, Lakota kind of moved down that way for a little bit because she knew a lot of Lakota that were living down in the southwest and that um, she had seen a lot of fry bread down there. Like it was normal and been around for a long time, but it really didn't come up this way till not that recently. That's something I never thought about, actually, because uh, Indian tacos, fry yeah. bread, that was a staple. Yeah. And people think it's just always been some people would argue with us. That's just been always our food, <laughs> you know, especially when we first opened up the Tatanka truck a few years ago. And the concept of uh, indigenous foods was kind of new to a lot of people. And we'd get in big arguments sometimes and be like, no, fry bread's been around us for, for centuries. And it's like, mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. How how have you developed your career, uh, both in college and post-college? Uh, just working hard, mostly, I feel like. Um, I, you know, I went to school at Black Hill State University, and then I moved to Minneapolis, and uh, I had the intention of going to an art school here in Minneapolis, and then realized how much art school cost, which I didn't have rich parents to be able to put me through that. So that <laughs> uh, pushed me into the belief that art would just be a hobby from that point forward. Um, and then I just continued to work uh, restaurants um, and I just worked my way up. So I became a pretty young chef in the cities. I was in the cities for about four years when I, by the time I got my first executive chef position. Um, and then I just kind of learned on the job. I didn't go to school for cooking or for managing kitchens and I had to learn fast. And so I read a lot and I just uh, you know, figured it out. <laughs> so hmm. I, didn't, I, was, I became a chef by accident. Okay. I, I guess I'd assume that there was a, a culinary arts uh, program at Black Hill State. Nope. Uh, nope. But, I went to school for business and uh, I came out here um, again thinking I was going to do art, but eventually I found art and food, which was a, the, hmm. another thing. And it's always about reading and history and understanding where food comes from and, uh, you know, just original recipes of things. I was always interested in that. So whenever I was traveling to Europe at a younger age, you know, I was always thinking about what region I'm in, what food is coming from there, the history of all these foods, and just really digging into those kinds of stories. And it wasn't, you know, until a while into my chef career that I all of a sudden realized, like, wait a minute, I don't know anything about Lakota food, you know? So, like, I could think of just a couple of recipes over the, off the top of my head, you know, like Wojapi, Taniga, Bapa, some things like that, that would, um, that were truly Lakota and not influenced by something else, you know? Um, so I really wanted to learn those recipes of like, where, 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 what is the Lakota food without the European influence and searching for that. And that took me on like almost a decade long self-educational, just, um, just, education plan basically of trying to teach myself um, and then just becoming so frustrated that nobody knew and it was so invisible that it just had to happen. Like you just had to start doing it. What was the, um, were there any sort of myths out there about indigenous food that you learned weren't true or were there things kind of obvious in the open that uh, were always indigenous foods? I think that because a lot of our, I mean, the biggest story of why we don't know that much about our foods is just because of the history of how things went down 
the amount of death that happened and the amount of elders that passed away um, holding knowledge that should have been shared. Um, you know, the amount of uh, healers and medicine men that were taken from us and put into sanitariums and any kind of tribal leaders uh, were in danger at the turn of the century. And, you know, we have to remember that it wasn't even legal to celebrate religions as an indigenous peoples until the 19, until 1978, when the Freedom of Religion Act and the Native Religion of Freedom Act happens back then. So a lot of people chose to hide anything that came that was a part of our education, which was all the stories and all the songs and the ceremonies. And they were held for a very select few group of people. And they're still held very tightly today amongst a lot of indigenous peoples, you know, because it, we weren't able to share freely like we had before all that went down. So we lose a lot of our foodways and we use, lose a lot of our connection to our past. Um, but I feel like we're, it's only been a couple of generations since that happened, you know, because it's like my grandparents' generation and my great-grandparents that we have, we have the ability to start to reclaim a lot of those knowledge pieces and to re-implement those knowledge pieces back into our daily lives. I don't know if that answered your question. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah. Um, you know, talking about the, the, um, the act in 78, you know, it reminds me of, um, the, the ceremonies that my father and uh, the men of his generation would run, you know, the, the sweat lodges would be in the woods and uh, sort of out of sight. And <clears throat> I think I had assumed it, it's because that was like where they were supposed to be, like you know, sort way. of a sacred space. What's that? Like the way it was supposed to be, but it's really, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was intentional that people had to hide our ceremonies for so long. Um, and a lot it of us to stay away from love. Yeah, a lot of elders in different communities because I've traveled a lot, and some some keep it so tight, you know, because they went through. They saw a lot of death. They saw a lot of bad things happen to people that were, they would, you know, be considered rebels. You know, they'd be considered uh, dan danger. You know, so mm -hmm. those people, you could die from actually practicing your ceremonies for the longest time throughout the 1900s. So how how do you seek opportunities, or how have opportunities? Um presented themselves to you over the years. I know when people are younger in their careers, they're, they're seeking opportunities, but as we move forward, opportunities start to present themselves. Yeah, I feel like that's true. And I feel like once I really found this path that it's really pulled me along, you know, and I feel like when I looked backwards, I was already working on this path, even whether I realized it or not. So um, little things like right out of high school, working for the U.S. Forest Service and having to learn the names of all the plants in the northern Black Hills and uh, identify everything and pieces like that. So things that came in, you know, um, just was a part of my education growing up that was unintentional, but all became a bigger part of the plan. Um, so I feel like I've just been being pulled down this life's path. But once I started doing this work and really following this passion, more and more doors started opening up. And, you know, I think it was really important that I took, you know, quite a few years of just reflection and self-education to try to truly understand how to articulate what it, what it was that I wanted to do. Um, and once I started actually doing it in real time and doing these dinners and starting the business way back in 2014, um, that it really, I feel like I was able to learn at such a faster rate. I was able to really meet a lot of people um, and just my universe just kept expanding and expanding, you know, and I feel like it's going to be like that the rest of my life because there's too much to learn out there and not enough time. So all you can do is just do your best and try, try to absorb what you can, but, you know, pick your path and stay true to it. I think that's great. 
that leads us to uh, the last question is what would you say to the 18 to 22 year old that's listening to this conversation? You know, if you're from an indigenous community and it's something that you, I I really feel like uh, as indigenous peoples, like we have to understand how important it is that we steward all of our generational knowledge moving forward, because we just went through two centuries of dismantling of our, of our, of, of, of everything, our culture in general, you know, not just our food waste, but all, all of it, our language, our stories, um, our connections, all the pieces. So it's really important that we utilize the world today with such access to such immense educate education and knowledge um, and that we are able to rebuild of what is it, what does it mean to be a modern day indigenous person and how can we protect our future generations of being able to maintain our cultures you know so everything we do we have to think past us and we have to think about the future um, but also knowing that we have to put the hard work into it that nothing's going to come easy you know um, and we're going to have to work towards a better future, all of us together. And we're all kind of in it together. And people coming from non-Indigenous communities, I feel like they should really realize the importance of understanding how the Indigenous communities, not just here, but on a global scale, had that blueprint to live sustainably and organically within their community Um primarily by utilizing plant knowledge when it comes down to it and how important it is to reconnect with the world around us and to take the time to learn those lessons. So I think there's a lot of work that all of us have to do because our Western, our Westernized education system um, leaves a lot of gaps and it keeps us ignorant and keeps us locked into the capitalization era that we happen to be in and the globalization where we think we have to buy everything and that's the only way you get things when in actuality we could work with the world around us we could work as a community and we can build enough food and education for ourselves that don't have to have a monetary value to it where can our, our listener where can they find information on you they can go to um, sue-chef.com and that's s-i-o-u-x-chef.com they can also check out our restaurant website at owamni.com and that's o-w-a-m-n-i.com um, and they can also check out our nonprofit, which is natives um, and again it's an acronym for north american traditional indigenous food systems n-a-t-i-f-s so natives.org there's a lot of information there too and people could really just google the sous chef and it's going to pop up all over the place we've gotten a lot of articles a lot of videos and a lot of things. And uh, people can also purchase our book, The Sous Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, which they can find online or their local bookstores. And um, there's a book in the works for the uh, next one. So just keep your eyes open. I think that's great. We'll put links in the show notes uh, for our, viewer, our listener to, to find. Awesome. So, yep. Sean, thank you so much for this. This was wonderful having you here. Awesome. Well, and thank you so much for having me. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Chef Sean again for his time and sharing his story with us. He's a remarkable individual. He's done something that many of us have always talked about doing, but has never got around to it. And that's addressing a huge health issue within Native America with a solution. And that's um, turning to healthy foods and, and in a very creative uh, and intentional way. And I think it's, it's a great path forward in revitalizing our culture and not sticking to um, you know the old tropes of of what we used to call Indian tacos you know and relying on commodities but finding our own way of creating businesses and sustaining a future for us that is created by us and so uh, the work he's doing is an incredible model and he's doing it in a way that 
is world class, as it should be. You know, it's he, he's creating such a high bar and standard for us. How do we not follow it with such enthusiasm and respect for all of us, ourselves and him? Uh, I'm, I'm just so inspired from this conversation. And of course, uh, you know, looking at myself and wanting to, to better myself. So I hope you feel the same way. Uh, this conversation was incredibly valuable and uh, we have a model uh, to move forward with. That being said, um, uh, there's a lot of links in the show notes to um, his, his restaurant, his nonprofit work, and social media. So I encourage you to, to look into him, support him. Uh, I know um, as soon as I can, I'm going to set up a reservation uh, for his restaurant and uh, enjoy the cuisine that he uh, is creating. So, uh, Chef Sean, thank you so much for this conversation. So, I want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. So, please join us next time as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on Canada. That's C-A-N-A-A, Creativity Among Native American Artists on Facebook, Instagram, across social media, and at the plansart.org website. There you can see our programming, our past videos, and these podcasts. That all being said, um, this concludes season two of the podcast. Um, we're going to take a short winter break, and we'll be back in February with new interviews, new guests, uh, very exciting guests uh, that are lined up, and I can't wait to share my conversations with these incredible people with you. Uh, we are definitely moving forward uh, with some really great stuff. So uh, listen to episodes you've missed. Uh, find great indigenous podcasts out there and follow them and support them. And we will see you in February. If you have a suggestion for someone for me to interview, please find me on Facebook or Instagram or my email, which is jwilliams at plainsart.org and message me. I would really love to be able to connect with them. Well, that's it. You take care. We will see you next season and be safe out there. This has been an 11 Warrior Arts production.